Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13. As we continue our study through the book of Revelation, we come this morning to another one of the villains of the book, the beast. And in the last chapter, we saw the dragon. The dragon attacked the child. And then when he couldn't reach the child, he went after the woman. In other words, when Satan couldn't defeat Jesus, he went after the church. He went after God's faithful people, believing Jews and the new church. In Revelation 13, we actually meet two characters that are both called beasts. A beast from the sea and a beast from the land. But as the book goes on, the beast from the land is called the false prophet. So when we refer to the beast, we're usually talking about the first beast, the beast from the sea. Now this morning we're going to read all of chapter 13, but our focus is going to be on the beast from the sea. Next time we'll look at the land beast, the false prophet. So look at the text, just kind of look at it and glance at it before I read, because I want to introduce this. Let me explain a little. You'll see that verses 1 through 10 are about the first beast, but I've also included verses 16 to 18 this week. And here's why. Verses 1 to 10 are about the first beast. Verses 11 to 15 tell us about the second beast. But then in verses 16 to 18, we read about the mark of the beast and his identification with 666. These verses are describing what the second beast is doing, but it's on behalf of the first beast. So the mark and the number 666 refer to the first beast. So that's why we're including it this morning. Now we'll save the mark for next time when we talk about what the second beast does. But we will need to look at the number 666 this morning in order to identify the first beast. So that's why we're including some verses out of order. I don't usually do that, this, but I'm doing that this morning. We're not skipping verses 11 to 15. We will pick those up next time along with verses 16 to 18 again. All right, follow along with me as I read from Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. A little over 10 years ago, a woman named Christine Wyke gained some notoriety because of her theory that caught on that monster energy drinks were satanic. They feature a cross in the logo on the O, which is turned upside down when you drink it. The M logo looks like three of the Hebrew letter Vav, and Vav is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, thus the logo is 666, and their slogan is, Unleash the Beast. Could that be what Revelation 13 is talking about? Or consider this, Kamala Harris's middle name is Devi. That's the Sanskrit word meaning divine. Divine means of or like God. Well, the beast is going to commit blasphemy. If we translate Devi into English and write out her full name, we have Kamala Divine Harris. And how many letters are in each word? Six, six, six. Could that be what Revelation 13 is talking about? Well, over the years, there have been many, many attempts to connect the beast of Revelation 13 with current individuals or institutions. For example, Ronald Wilson Reagan has six letters in each name. The beast has also been identified with Henry Kissinger, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, and many, many others throughout time. Should we even try to identify who the beast is? Well, I think we actually are supposed to do that. After all, John tells his readers in verse 18 that this calls for wisdom and he encourages them, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. So John expected his readers to figure out who he was talking about. But there are at least three kind of basic principles we have to keep in mind here. First, we've got to be tied to scripture. We can't go off on wild conspiracy theories and wild conjectures about energy drinks and things like that. We've got to be guided and directed by what the Word of God says. And second, we need to recognize that John expected his readers in the first century to identify the beast. And it wouldn't make any sense for the people in Ephesus to be studying the clues that John gives and saying, well, I figured it all out, but who on earth is Kamala Harris? No, it would be someone that John's readers would recognize. And third, we need to remember why we're calculating who the beast is. Yes, John tells his readers to do so, but why? 
And John actually tells us why he's writing about the beast. And we don't want to miss the point. We want to learn the lesson that John is teaching us. And that'll be the main point when we get to it later this morning. So let's talk about the identity of the beast. The first thing we need to realize is that John speaks about the beast in two different ways. Two different ways. Sometimes it's specific, but sometimes it's general. Sometimes it's an individual, but sometimes it's corporate. Now, the most well-known part of John's description here when he's describing the beast is what happens in verse 18. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. By the way, I'm saying it that way intentionally because the number is 666. It's not 666, okay? That's an important clarification that'll rule out a lot of nonsense along the way too. So according to this verse, the beast is a man. It says it's the number of a man. But then we also have what John says in chapter 17. So flip over a couple of pages to Revelation 17 and look with me at verses 7 through 11. Okay, Revelation 17, start in verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. So this is the same beast, okay? The beast with seven heads and ten horns. And now look at verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads on the beast are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So the beast here seems to be a place a place with seven mountains or hills. Now, in the ancient world, everyone knew which city was the seven-hilled city. It's Rome. Many different ancient writers refer to Rome this way. Plutarch and Suetonius both refer to a festival in Rome called the Septimantium. It means the feast of the seven-hilled city. Okay, Sept is seven, Mont is mountain. Vespasian, who was the emperor who ultimately destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, had coins minted. And you can see he's got his picture there on the left. But on the right, what he has here is the goddess Roma, who's associated with Rome. And she's seated on seven hills. We even know the names of the seven hills of Rome. They are the Palatine, the Aventine, the Caelian, the Esquiline, the Viminal, the Quirinal, and the Capitoline. Those are the seven hills that surround Rome. So when John talks about the seven mountains or seven hills, we know what he's talking about. That's Rome. Okay? Now look at verses 10 and 11. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Okay, so we have seven heads, and considered all together here, the set, there are seven kings. And at the same time, the beast is identified with those seven kings. So if the beast were to be considered an eighth, he would be associated with the group of seven. The group, considered as a whole, then is the Roman Empire. That's, that's what's represented by Rome. Okay? 
the kings represent the empire, the emperors, the Caesars. So the beast is a man, but the beast is also the Roman Empire. And we're familiar with language like this, right? When I refer to the body of Christ, what comes to your mind? Well, it could be the physical body of Jesus, the body that was crucified and buried and rose again. But it could also be the church, because the church is called the body of Christ, and they're represented by him, and the two are related. We're also familiar with the idea that a man can represent a kingdom. Jesus represents all of his people as their king. And the Caesars were, in a sense, the representatives of the Roman Empire. They're the face of the empire. Now, before we look at which individual man might fit the description here, let's look a little bit, a little bit closer at this idea that this could be the Roman Empire. The beast is described as rising out of the sea. Remember what John means when he speaks of the land and the sea. The land is the land of Israel, okay, representing the Jewish people. The sea is Gentile peoples, and the Roman Empire would be the most prominent manifestation of the Gentile peoples. When John identifies the beast with the seven hills of Rome, he's not just speaking about the city itself, but about the empire that's headquartered there. The world power of Rome, the Roman Empire. And notice how he describes the beast in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It has ten horns and seven heads, and it was like a leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Now those animals, being connected with beasts here, should bring something else to your mind. Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are in view here. The vision of four beasts that are four empires. And what were the first three? Lion, bear, and leopard. They represented the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and the Greek empires. And then the fourth beast, Daniel says, was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. He's talking about the Roman Empire as a ten-horned beast that comes in the, in the procession of, of empires from Daniel's time up through the time of Christ. So this beast from the sea that John sees in Revelation 13 incorporates all the terror of the first three empires, leopard and bear and lion, but it's clearly the ten-horned beast, the fourth empire, the Roman Empire. Now, that's considered as a, as a corporate entity. We also said it's a man. It's a particular individual. So can we identify the man? Well, I believe we can, and it's pretty clear. The beast from the sea in Revelation 13 is Nero Caesar, the emperor who was ruling when John wrote Revelation in the mid to late 60s. And I'll give you two lines of evidence for this, okay? First of all, remember that John is writing in Greek. Okay, it's the Roman Empire, and we, we know we have the Latin language that becomes associated with the Roman Empire, but Greek is, the, is the, the kind of common language, and that's what John is writing in. But 
he's writing for an audience that's very familiar with all things Jewish, with the Old Testament, with Hebrew. We've already seen in this book, he's used plenty of Old Testament language and allusions and imagery from the temple and from the Exodus and from lots of different places in the Old Testament. But in the ancient world, numbers were expressed differently than what we do today. We use Arabic numerals. So in Arabic, there are letters and there are numbers. And they each have their own unique separate symbols. So for example, in English today, if I wanted to write the number five, I could write it as the word five, F-I-V-E, or I could write it as the numeral number five. But that's not how most of the ancient world worked. For example, earlier this year, we had Super Bowl 56. The Rams beat the Bengals. Here's the logo for, for the Super Bowl. How is 56 written? In Roman numerals. The L equals 50, the V equals 5, and the I equals 1. And when you add them all up, you get 56. Now, sometimes Roman numerals are a little more complicated than that. There's some subtracting, and it matters which side the letters are on and all that stuff. But that's the basic idea. The letters represent numbers, and you add them up. That's Latin, Roman numerals. In both Greek and Hebrew, numbers work in a similar way. The letters of the alphabet represent different numbers. There are no separate numerals. And what that means is any word could be transposed into a numerical value. So in Hebrew, the first nine letters of the Hebrew alphabet are given the meaning 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. And then the next nine letters get 10, 20, 30, 40. And then the last five are 100, 200, 300, etc. So this te technique was often used to represent individuals. If we were to do that in English, my name, Jason, would have a value like this. J would be 10 because it's the 10th letter of the English language. A would be 1, it's the first letter. S would be 100 because it's the 19th letter, and so on. And when you add all of that up, my name would have the value of 221. And if you wanted to find a historical association, if you wanted to kind of write in code about me, you could maybe use something associated with Sherlock Holmes and solving mysteries because Sherlock Holmes lived at 221 Baker Street in London. We know that this kind of thing was done. The, the ancient city of Pompeii that was covered with a volcano, when that was excavated, they found an inscription there on a wall, and it reads, Philo S. Arithmas, Phi Mu Epsilon. Translated, it means, I love her whose number is 545. And be, that means the, the Phi is 500, Mu is 40 and Epsilon is 5, you add them up and the total is 545. So the girl that he loved, when you took the letters of her name and you added up the numerical values, it totaled 545. So instead of writing the name, he wrote it in code. He wrote Phi Mu Epsilon, 545. It's still a little bit of a code, but if you lived in Pompeii, you might have an idea of who was meant. There were actually already subversive sayings about Nero floating around in John's day too, using the numerical value of his name in Greek. In Greek, Nero's name equals 1005. And so there's a saying that says, a calculation new 
Nero, his mother, slew. The value of the name Nero in Greek is 1,005, and the value of the phrase his mother slew is also 1,005. So the coded message here was Nero is a mother slayer. And that was true. Nero killed his own mother, arranged for it. In Revelation 13, verse 18, John tells his readers, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the man that John's indicating, when you add up the numbers associated with the letters of his name, you get a total of 666. Now, I already told you, Nero's name adds up to 1,005. But that's in Greek. When you write Nero, Nero Caesar in Hebrew you have a value of 666. And this is exactly how, for instance, Jastro's lexicon of the Talmud spells Nero Caesar. And John's readers, familiar with Hebrew, would be able to figure that out. Now, the other line of evidence that points to Nero looks at the rest of what's in the text here. So does the rest of the information that we have line up with it being Nero? We saw earlier that in Revelation 17, speaking of the seven heads of the beast, John wrote in verses 10 and 11, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So what does history tell us? Well, the very first Roman emperor was Julius Caesar. After him come four more, Augustus, remember Augustus is the one who was ruling when Jesus was born, in the days of Caesar Augustus, the census went out, right? And then there's Tiberius and Gaius and Claudius, and after those five, Nero became emperor in AD 54. So, remember what the text says, seven kings, five have fallen, one is and this, that's Nero, and the seventh hasn't come yet, and when he does, he'll only remain for a little while. Well, the seventh emperor was Galba, who reigned from June of 68 till January of 69. In other words, only a little while. Okay? So the timing described by John in Revelation 17 comes to pass perfectly, and it indicates Nero as the beast that he's writing about. There's another chronological and historical clue in our text as well, though. The beast exercises this authority of persecution on the church for 42 months. Now, as we mentioned, Nero's persecution began in the middle of November of 64 AD. Now, since it starts in the middle of the month, we don't count November. So if you start at December, we have December, that's one. Then A.D. 65, 66, and 67, three years, that's 36 months. So 1 plus 36 is 37. Then in A.D. 68, January, February, March, April, May, five more months brings us to 42 months. And so you say, well, what happened at the end of May? Nero committed suicide on June 9th, A.D. 68. So when you add up the time of persecution, which ends with Nero's death, you have 42 months, just like John said. So the number 666 indicates Nero. 
The chronology indicates Nero. The history indicates Nero. We could see in a little bit that Nero's character also fits the description about as well as anyone could possibly imagine. But before we move on to his character, remember what John's purpose and expectation is. He wants to encourage his readers in the persecution that they're already facing. He's, a, he's their partner in the tribulation, remember he said way back at the beginning. And they're going to continue to face this persecution for a time. And knowing that all of this is under the sovereignty of God should give them confidence to live in faith. And John expects that they will be able to figure out who he's talking about. He's given them enough clues and the clues are clear enough that he could, they can figure it out. So why does he write in code in the first place? Why not just say Nero? Well, remember where John is. He's in exile on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was speaking about Jesus and his message about Jesus got him sent to prison in Patmos. So just like someone today in a maximum security prison, if they were sending out a letter, they would expect that that letter would be read by the guards before it goes out. John knows his letter to the seven churches is going to be read by the Roman guards and officials before it's ever allowed to leave the island. So he writes in a way that the pagan Romans wouldn't understand because he's basing the number 666 on the Hebrew spelling of Nero Caesar. But it's easy enough for the churches to figure out. His Roman guards probably just thought he was nuts with all of his visions of beasts and dragons and women riding on them and things like that. So now let's look at the character of the beast. In the text, we see that this beast has blasphemous names on its heads. It has power and authority given to it by the dragon, who is Satan. It utters blasphemous and haughty words against God and against the divine counsel in heaven. It makes war on the saints, and it accepts the worship of those whose names are not written in the book of life. Does Nero fit the bill here? Well, the first five years of Nero's reign were very calm. He seemed to govern well, but history tells us that was actually due to the influence of his tutors, Seneca and Burrus. And it probably also, by the way, explains why Paul takes the tone he does in Romans chapter 13 about submitting to the governing authorities. That's the time frame where Romans is written, is during the good part of Nero's reign. Seneca and Burrus recognized the evil nature of Nero from his childhood. It was evident. So what they tried to do, because they're worried about what, if this, if this nature comes out in the way that he rules, it's going to destroy the empire. So they're worried about this. So what do they do? Well, they tried to steer his depravity toward private outlets and pleasures so that he wouldn't cause public harm. Now, I'm choosing not to explain this morning just what level of depravity Nero acted out, <clears throat> but since it's June, let's just say he would be the Grand Marshal of the Pride Parade, and even by today's standards, he would have gotten arrested for the kinds of things that he did. He plotted the death of his own mother, 
and soon after his mother died, his advisor Burris died. He then ordered his other advisor Seneca to commit suicide, which he did. Nero divorced his wife and married his mistress, but then when she got pregnant, he kicked her to death. He wasted the treasury of the empire, and then he began to falsely blame the Roman nobles in order to cover his mismanagement. In AD 64, a great fire broke out in Rome, and many people blamed Nero, even though he wasn't in the city at the time. They thought he was responsible for it. And in order to turn the attention away from himself, he blamed the Christians. So persecution against the Christians began in earnest in the middle of November of AD 64. And by AD 68, there were revolts against Nero. And he recognized that the, the, the major revolt, the one that was led by Galba, had him cornered and defeated. And on June 9th, AD 68, Nero committed suicide. Now John tells us that the beast was worshipped. And we see that as you go through the chapters of Revelation. You see it in chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 16, 19, 20. All of the Roman emperors accepted worship in some form. They adopted divine names. Nero particularly fancied himself to be like Apollos. And we have inscriptions found in Ephesus. And remember, Ephesus is one of the seven cities that this letter was sent to. We have inscriptions in Ephesus that call Nero Almighty God and Savior. The evil of Nero was inspired by Satan, by the dragon. The beast serves the dragon, represents the dragon. Nero was doing the work of Satan. Now, it's true that Satan is on a leash, right? Jesus has Satan on a leash. He can't deceive the nations any longer. But it's good for us to remember that even today, individual rulers and leaders can still do the bidding of Satan. They can pursue evil ends. Let's think for a minute about the power that the beast has. Did you notice that the crowns are on the horns rather than on the heads? That indicates that it's power that is seen as the source of authority rather than the person. Okay, the horns represent power. In other words, it's not that it's a legitimate ruler or a good ruler or a just and righteous ruler. No, it's simply the fact that this ruler has power. Power is essentially what's being worshipped. That's why he has the authority. And as our culture today more and more rejects absolute truth or standards, that's increasingly the case for us too. It's all about power. It's not about whether the authority is legitimate or constitutional or righteous. It's simply about power dynamics. And we need to realize that man, left to his blasphemous self, seeks to take power to himself. And that can be in the form of a dictatorship, but it can also be in the form of a democracy. Think about it. If, if it's simply majority rules then we're not using any outside standard to judge what's right and wrong. It's simply the power of the majority, regardless of what's actually moral or righteous or just. That's why we have the phrase vox populi vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. We're making ourselves gods. The idolatrous government becomes the absolute power, and that means that the government itself becomes the standard, 
by which things are judged. And hopefully I don't have to explain to you why that's so dangerous. Well, next time we're going to see that Israel as a nation sides with Rome. They make their choice. They side with Caesar and the empire over God and his Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. And over and over they accuse the Christians of worshiping another king, namely Jesus. So they present the Christians to Rome as an imperial threat. And Satan's all too eager to jump on that opportunity. John tells us that the beast has his authority from the dragon. That means Nero has his authority from Satan. Nero's authority and power exercised against the church is satanic. John tells us that one of the heads of the beast seems to receive a mortal wound. But then the beast's wound is healed and the whole earth marvels and worships. So what's that talking about? Well, first, remember that this image of the beast is both individual and corporate. It's a man, but it's also an empire. And both are in view here. So Nero committed suicide. He had put to death many Christians and others, many of them by the sword. But in June of AD 68, Nero had his servant help him to use his own sword to kill himself. And when that happened, it set the Roman Empire on a course of instability and apparent ruin. After Nero's death comes what history calls the year of four emperors. Potential rulers were clambering over each other to become Caesar. And Roman historian Tacitus describes this apparent collapse of the empire. And then he says this. He says, this was the condition of the Roman state when Servius Galba, chosen consul for the second time, and his colleague Titus Vinius entered upon the year that was to be for Galba his last, because he would be killed, and for the state almost the end. So the year that he's talking about is 68, when Nero's still the emperor, but Galba is leading the revolt. That's going to be the last year for Galba, and it is this apparent collapse of empire, the state for the state almost the end. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says something similar. He says Rome was near ruin so that the state of the Romans was so ill that every part of the habitable earth under them was in an unsettled and tottering condition. In other words, the mortal wound of the beast Nero seemed to be a mortal wound for the empire beast. But the empire beast was healed and went on living. And that remarkable recovery by the empire made people even more inclined to worship it. What does it mean that they worship the beast? Well, ultimately, worship isn't just what happens in church on Sunday or at the temple. Worship is your mindset, your attitude, your submission to whatever you think is ultimate. So, If the one thing you won't question is the state, then the state is your God. That's what you worship. So if the state says you may not meet for church 
and your response is, well, the state said that's what we have to do, so we have to do it, then the state is who you worship. And if you won't oppose, for instance, Roe v. Wade, like we talked about in class last week, because the Supreme Court has issued their decree, then the state is who you worship. And that leads us then to the mark of the beast, but we're going to save that for next time. Okay? It's the second beast that causes people to be marked. So we'll save that for when we talk about the second beast. The main point this morning then, the doctrine that we want to see that is, is what's found at the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. God calls his people to endurance and faith. The word endurance has the idea of patience. It's persevering, not swerving from your purpose, even when great trials come. And faith is assurance and conviction. It's believing with trust. So the verse is telling us that based on what God has revealed to us, we can have the kind of conviction and belief that allows us to persevere even in the midst of great trials. John's readers were already experiencing great tribu <clears throat> tribulation. He calls them his partners in the tribulation. And it was going to get worse for a while. And John wants to encourage them to persevere in the middle of that suffering. What is it about John's message, though, that would encourage perseverance? I mean, it seems like a pretty bleak message. It's all about the beast and his power and fury. What about this message should inspire confident trust in God? Well, first, this persecution displays God's providence. Through John, God is telling these believers exactly what is about to happen. That means God knows the future. God's in control. None of this is happening outside of God's hands. An example of this is what we see in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. After God revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel, Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God controls times and seasons. God removes and sets up kings. No king, no beast, no dragon is outside his control. And second, sometimes it seems that in times of persecution, the church shrinks. People fall away. But what that is in reality is a separation of the wheat from the weeds. If the circumstances of life, the difficulties that you face, pull you away from the church, then the reality is you were probably a weed to begin with, not wheat. Now we can't make that judgment as humans because we don't know the end. And God often brings people back. That seed is planted early. They fight against it maybe even for a time, but God brings them back. Normally, the wheat and the weeds grow together in the field. The church has true believers and false believers in it, but persecution tends to sift the church. So it has the effect of purifying the church, and that's a good thing. And third, persecution serves God's purposes. 
God uses Satan for his purposes. God uses earthly rulers for his purposes. And that was just as true with Nero as it is with any other beast. I know I've shared this quote from Wilhelmus Abrakel before, but I think it's a helpful one. Be not fearful of creatures as they cannot initiate their own motion. It is God alone who governs and controls them. Who would fear a sword or a stick or a stone when it's lying upon the ground and does not move since it's not in anyone's hand? See, the beast is acting on behalf of the dragon. But never forget that the dragon cannot do anything to God's people without God's permission. So what use is that doctrine for us today? How can this encouragement that John gave to the church in the days of Nero be a similar encouragement for us today? Let me give you three things. Number one, the reliability of God's word. For starters, this passage should give us confidence in the reliability of God's word. John's prophecies came true. That should remind us that God speaks truth. Jesus is the truth. So what God says, what Jesus says, is trustworthy. You can have confidence in it. It means you can have confidence about the future that God has promised. You can believe that Jesus will return. You can believe that your sin nature will be removed, that there will be no more tears, that you'll live forever in the joy of God's presence. It means you can believe that the dragon, Satan, will be cast into the lake of fire forever, never to trouble God's people again. But it also means you can have confidence about the salvation God has promised. You can believe that because of Jesus, your sins really are forgiven. That Jesus' righteousness really has been imputed to your account. That God really does see you now as dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That when you sin, you can find forgiveness in Christ. And it means that you can have confidence about what God has said about living this life. Is God's way really the best way to live? Yes, it really is. But what about when everyone else is cutting corners to get ahead? Will God really bless me for obedience? Yes, he will. What about when I'm afraid to open my mouth for the testimony of Jesus? Yes, God will bless you if you are faithful as a witness for Christ. And the fact that these prophecies came true is encouragement to us to believe God's word in every other area to which he's spoken. Secondly, the passage also speaks to the righteousness of God's justice. If you were to study up on Nero and his depravity, the vast majority of which I've avoided even mentioning this morning, you would find some parallels to our current culture. The deviance which is being celebrated in the United States right now bears a striking resemblance to Nero's practices. In the 17th century, I'm sorry, toward the 18, end of the 18th century, the Marquis de Sade in France was promoting all kinds of deviancy like what we are seeing being normalized in our culture today. His name, de Sade, is where we get words like sadistic or sadism. The Marquis de Sade said that his hero was Nero Caesar. Nero was an evil man, but Nero was given a mortal wound and the beast will be cast into the lake of fire along with the false prophet and the dragon. In the end, God's justice 
will be done. And you can have confidence in that. But you can also have confidence that God's justice is well-deserved. The beast and his followers fought against God's people. And by doing so, they were fighting against God himself. They're fighting against righteousness. They're fighting for evil. They're fighting for Satan. So when God's judgment falls in God's perfect timing, you can have confidence that his justice is well-deserved. And then finally, the resolve of God's people. John's purpose in writing here, he says, is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. John wants this teaching about the beast to result in God's people having greater confidence in God. So how should this encourage us? Well, first, be encouraged that great evil is not beyond God's control or purposes. When we see things like the persecution of the church under Nero, or the Holocaust under Hitler, or even the small ways in which we're seeing tyranny grow in our country and in our government today, we can be encouraged by remembering that nothing is beyond God's control or purposes. John Calvin reminds us that God so attends to the regulation of individual events, and they all so proceed from his set plan that nothing takes place by chance. Listen to these encouraging words from the Heidelberg Catechism. The eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them, by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful father. Second, be encouraged that you're not like the world. All too often we find ourselves wanting to be like the world, wanting to be accepted by the world. But if we're faithful to God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, if we speak for truth and righteousness, we will find ourselves at times at odds with the world. But that's a good thing. That's a good sign in your life. So be encouraged if you're not like the world. And finally, be encouraged that God's justice will prevail. There will be a final judgment. Evil will be judged. Righteousness will be rewarded. And God's children will live with him in his presence forever. Because of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged today. While injustice often seems to reign. That. God's justice will prevail. God's word is reliable. God's justice is righteous. So God's people should be resolved to live in endurance and faith. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider these words from Revelation and we think about the beast and the, the message of what's there and, and the scary times that these believers were living through. And we look at our own times and, and things are not as certain or as God honoring as maybe they used to be. 
and we worry about the future, I pray that a passage like this would give us confidence in who you are. Help us to remember that everything is in your control. That your righteousness and justice will prevail. And that you call us to live in the confidence of that. To live with endurance and faith. Enable us to do that. To see the world the way you do. Not to be afraid, but to to see the rulers and the powers for who they really are. And to remember who's ultimately in control. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.